Now, as you might expect on Father's Day for someone who is supposed to be a father able to fix things, I decided to destroy the wireless mic on my way up here. So, hold on. So fathers, teach your kids how to fix stuff. Uh, but I do want to encourage you as fathers, it is a daunting task. It is a great responsibility to mimic what we see in God our Father and, and demonstrate that to our children. But it is a blessing and a privilege. If you would, would you stand with me? And we're going to read the sermon for our, or the text for our sermon today. We're going to read verses, or Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. The text is going to be 1 through 7, but again, we're going to read the first 13 verses to see where this kind of fits in. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love that was demonstrated by sending your son Christ to die on our behalf. Thank you for calling us to yourself would you help us to understand and appreciate the greatness of your blessings towards us? And would you sanctify us with your word? Lord, during this time, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would remove distractions, that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit to preach your truth and for us all to hear. For your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the word mystery appears three times in our sermon text, and it, and it appears four times in what we just looked at. So it's, it's probably appropriate to give it a little of attention. Now, when we think of mysteries, we tend to think about those things that are shrouded in secrecy, those things that no one will ever know, or maybe no one is supposed to know. We, we think about mysteries such as who shot JFK, and if you live in my house, you have that daily mystery of who left the toothpaste on the bathroom counter. So these are things that, that we will never know uh, because they are things of God. <laughs> but, but in our text today, Paul is using this word differently. He's talking about secrets that are revealed, unknown truths 
unknown things from God that he has made known in his perfect and purposeful timing. The mystery that he speaks of in this text is explicitly uh, synopsized in verse 6. So if we look at Ephesians 3, 6, we see this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery of, of Christ, and the mystery is Christ, as we see in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 2. For I know... For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, if you would, turn back a chapter in Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Now, this is the passage that my brother Matthew has been preaching for the last couple of weeks, but it's actually also a great detail of the mystery that Paul is going to summarize here. So we're going to go back and look at it to, to get a good picture of the content. So if we look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19, we read, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the mystery that Paul uncovers, the truth that he reveals is the gospel. That there is only one way, and there's always only been one way to God, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And that is for the Jew and for the Gentile alike. And Galatians 2 tells us about this in more detail. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the gospel mystery is the focus of our text, but at the same time that Paul is revealing these glorious truths, he's also outlining his role and responsibility as it relates to this mystery. He is a steward. He is a minister. He is a preacher of peace to those who are far off. He is an apostle upon whom God is going to build his church, and he is Christ's prisoner. Now, 
As we've gone through this book of Ephesians, several times we've talked about the fact that you could, you could split it into two sections, with the first section, the first three chapters, outlining the doctrines, and the last three chapters, chapters four through six, telling us what our rightful response, what our duty is in light of those great doctrines. But we can also look at this somewhat as a, a plane flight. So the first three chapters are kind of the takeoff and the flight, with the last four, three chapters showing the landing and the disembarking of the plane. So if we look at it this way, we see the brief introduction, which is our takeoff, and then we begin to soar. We soar to see God's sovereign, loving work in salvation. We cruise the heights as we understand our undeservedness and our unworthiness of this salvation. How despite the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we have no hope, that we are without God, he still adopted us. And not only us, but brothers and sisters from all nations and throughout time. Now, from this altitude, way up here, we get an expansive view of God and his greatness. And thus far in our flight, thus far as we've gone through Ephesians, it's been all God. His love, his power, his glorious riches. And even in chapter one, where Paul is praying for the, the Christians in Ephesus, he's simply praying that they would be made more aware of the great works that God had already done on their behalf. So he has chosen us, he has redeemed us, he has resurrected us, he has given us an internal inheritance, and he has destroyed the wall of hostility that separated us from us, from one another, and from him. And at this lofty vantage, it is very clear that salvation is of God alone. And while we're looking at these great doctrines, we rightfully see that man is small. And up, in, up until this point in our proverbial fright, man has been merely a recipient of God's blessings. He's been a beneficiary of what God has given us. And if we even take a time to notice him, he, he looks like it, you're in a plane, you look down and you see people, but they look like ants. But they, at the end of chapter two, we get a hint of something a little bit different. We get a glimpse that men will not just be hearers of this amazing story of salvation, God has called us to be actors in it. We can just look and see that God has ordained that man would be participants in this perfect plan that he's been describing throughout the chapter. Now, the first time we see this reference is we see the reference to human preachers. If you look at Ephesians 2.17, it's in there. It's very subtle, but he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, we know that when Christ was on the earth in bodily form, that he didn't make it to the entire world. He didn't preach, for instance, in Ephesus. Additionally, while he was here, he was already sending out preachers. He sent out the apostles in Mark 6 and the 72 disciples in Luke 10. And then we see in Ephesians 3, 8, that Paul was called to preach as well. And he was called specifically to preach to the Gentiles. So looking at Ephesians 3.8, again, we see, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, we're gonna look at this text in more depth next week, but we already see that preaching is something that God calls believers to participate in. 
Now, the next indication of man's involvement in God's efforts or his endeavors we see in Ephesians 2, 19, and 20. We looked at that just a moment ago, but looking back at 2, 19, and 20 specifically, we see, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we see that God will use men. In this case, it's the apostles and prophets to build his church. And if we continue with our flight analogy, this kind of comes at us as a call to put your tray tables and seats in your upright and locked position because we're getting ready to land. We're getting ready to have the rubber meet the road. We're getting ready to see how these transcendent truths that he's been describing in such detail and we've been contemplating so long are going to start to invade and impact our day-to-day lives. So to help us with this transcendence or this transition, to help us descend into our own lives, Paul gives us his own personal case study. And so that's what our text is today. So starting with verse one, it says, for this reason. Now, we've talked about the theme of unity in Ephesians for some time. Paul has reminded us of the blessings that are ours only because we are in Christ. And we just looked at the fact that God is reconciled to himself, both Jew and Gentile into one body. So it makes sense that in a letter that unity is so important, he would spend time making sure to connect one thought to the thought that came before it and the thought that came before that. And our text represents the third time that we see for this reason or therefore. And so just like we've done in the past, we are going to go back to look at what came before in order that we can understand this text. So, Looking at chapter one, we see the riches that we have because of the lavish love of our omnipotent father who predestined us to be adopted as his children. And he redeemed us and brought us back with the blood of Christ, guaranteeing our inheritance with his Holy Spirit. Then Paul prays that those who are in Christ would have this deeper understanding, would have a more intimate knowledge of the God that loves them this way, and that they would have a greater appreciation for the riches that are ours in Christ and for his resurrection power. Now we move to chapter two, and we begin with our desperate need for this resurrection power. This immeasurable great power that was demonstrated in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him far above all rule and authority is on our behalf. We were dead in our trespasses. We were like the dry bones in Ezekiel. We could do nothing. But God resurrected us with this power and raised us from death to eternal life in Christ. And he did all the work. He did it because we couldn't. He did it to remove any basis of boasting, any sense of pride. We are his workmanship. He has created us and prepared good works for us, which he also enables us to do. Further, we find that this is the only means of salvation. Whether you are from the commonwealth of Israel or you are from far away and have been separated from God's promises and his covenant, there is only one way to be drawn near, which is the blood of Christ. And through this blood, we become one body. We become one temple. And this temple, we know, is not a temple made by hands, but is a temple being built by God in Christ It's a temple with no barriers to our unity. 
and instead offers people from all around the world and throughout time access to our Father who's in heaven. And as one body, we recognize that this body is being built up completely by the work of God. But he does use people to participate in that work. So now getting to our text here. So because salvation is from the Lord alone, but he determines to use fallible people as a part of his perfect plan, Paul prays. He prays that God would enable these people to be strengthened enough to understand the expansiveness of God's love. His prayer, though, doesn't start until verse 14. So we're going to cover that text next week. What we're going to look at now is this 12 or the 13 verses that come up before that. Before he gets to the prayer, there are 12 verses in a parenthetical statement. He takes a bit of a detour from his train of thought in order that he can address some of the concerns and some of the questions that he might expect to rise from leading with the fact that, well, he's a prisoner. And he's going to expand on this. He's going to, again, point out the fact that he is a steward, he is a minister, he's a preacher. And he's the least of all the saints. So finally, when he gets to verse 13, he will also encourage the saints not to be disheartened as they look at the hardship of his assignment, knowing that even that works for their good. Ephesians 13 says, So I ask that you do not lose heart over what I am suf- suffering for you, which is your glory. So we continue on in verse 1 where we see, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Paul begins by pointing out the fact that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And this is a phrase similar to what he's going to start chapter 4 with, where he says he's a prisoner for the Lord. And in Philemon, he says that he's a prisoner for Christ. And this brings to mind that he, of course, is in prison while he's writing this letter. It reveals his understanding that though there were Jews that accused him and there were Romans that arrested him, he is actually in jail for the sake of the gospel. Now, for review, the charges that led to his arrest and imprisonment were that he was teaching against the law and that he had defiled the temple by bringing in Gentiles. If you would, turn with me to Acts 21. We're going to look at verses 27 through 36. And you remember, uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus was about three years. He made his way there on his third missionary trip The gospel flourished there. It grew, but so did the opposition. So we find at the end of Acts 19 that there was this massive riot against the believers and against Paul. And Paul left, and he continued his missionary journey through Macedonia and Greece. And that's outlined in Acts 20, where also we see the last time he met with the elders from Ephesus. And he encouraged them. He exhorted them to continue their faithful ministry to the church in Ephesus. And from there, Paul continued to Jerusalem. Now, once he got to Jerusalem, everyone knew he was coming. There was a lot of concern that he was in opposition to the law. So James convinced him that in order to play down some of this animosity and these concerns, that he should purify himself according to the law. And this is where we find ourselves in Acts 21, verses 27 through 34. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. 
Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. So the Jews accused Paul of of preaching against the law, but of course these accusation was unfounded. He wasn't preaching against the law. He was just preaching against the, the belief that this was the means by which we could be saved. We see this in Romans 3, 19 through 26. So if you turn to Romans 3, 19 through 26, we will read that. Again, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is making the very clear case that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. There's none righteous. And even though the Jews had been recipients of the law, they had also proved themselves to be lawbreakers. So Romans 3, 19 through 26 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And again, we remember from Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that we read about a couple of weeks ago. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So so that no one may boast. So Paul preached that the law makes us aware of sin, but that righteousness had always been apart from the works of the law. It had been apart from the works of man. It had always been God's unmerited favor It had always been God's grace. This truth notwithstanding, the Jews accused him of heresy. Additionally, the Jews accused him of defiling the temple. You may remember the sermon a couple of weeks ago where our brother Matt described the temple that was built by Herod. Herod had built a temple and he desired that the Gentiles would be able to see it. So in order to appease the Jews and to meet his desire to have the Gentiles there, he created a separate section that was separated by a wall that the Gentiles could go in. Paul was being accused not of bringing the the Greeks into that section, but bringing them into the ones that was separated specifically for the Jews. And though the Jews had no proof that he'd actually done it, there's a sense that they were right. There's a sense that they understood that he, in fact, 
wanted to make God's temple available to all nations. He just wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the spiritual temple, the one where all who are in Christ are being built together in. And so, charging and convicting Paul of this heresy and the defiling, the Jews proceeded to execute their judgment. Instead of him being killed, though, he was arrested by the Romans. And with all this in mind, it's easy to look and say, okay, he was, he's in prison because he was accused of these things falsely, or he's in prison because of the Romans, but Paul understood better. Again, he knew that he was in chains for the sake of the gospel. He knew that he was a prisoner for Christ. Importantly, this text actually says in the ESV translation, a prisoner of Christ. So put, using this phrase, using this word, it puts a little different angle on it. So not only is he there for the sake of gospel, he's actually been arrested by Christ, that he's been constrained, that he's been redirected. And Paul understands that just like Jonah eventually did, his service is not a suggestion. It's God's prerogative. So we look at 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 17, and we understand Paul's position. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And it's similar for us as blood-bought believers. And we can see in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So Paul understands clearly that it is actually God who is in charge. In verse 2, Paul writes of the stewardship that he has. In verse 3, he writes of the mystery that has been revealed, and we understand that that revelation is from God. In verse 4, he points to God's sovereignty in determining which time this revelation would happen. In verse 8, he he identifies and he points out the fact that he is the least of all the saints, so no one can be confused that his role as an apostle had anything to do with his value or his worth. And once again, in verse 11, he reiterates that all of this is according to God's plan. All of this is according to God's purpose. So he knows that his walk, that his ministry is for God's purpose. He has been detained on the road to Damascus, and now he knows he serves at God's discretion. So after he's stated that he is a prisoner, he starts this parenthetical phrase. Again, when you tell people you're a prisoner, that might bring up some questions or some concerns. So Paul sees those, and he starts to dig in. Looking at verse 2, it says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, if anyone had the misfortune to be in my Sunday school class a few months ago, we we know what a steward is. A steward is one who is given things that must be managed in a way that's consistent with the objectives of the one who gave them to it. The steward doesn't own what he's been given. He's merely a caretaker, and he has the responsibility and the requirement to use those things according to the instructions and the purpose of one who actually owns them. So Paul wants to make sure that everyone who reads this knows that what he has been given was not for the purpose of bringing him glory. It wasn't for the purpose of providing power. It was for the purposes that God had established, which was for their benefit. So we read 1 Corinthians 12, 7, where it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
And further, we see that he's following his own instructions from Romans 12, 6, where he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, this stewardship conversation points us back again to Ephesians 2.20, where we know that Christ will use these men to build his church. And it points us forward to Ephesians 4.11.13, where he expands on the use of people in the building of Christ's church. So in Ephesians 4.11-13, we have, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the ministry, to, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. So even as Paul seeks to encourage them to listen to his very important message, he continues to glorify God. He continues to make it known that the only reason he has this message is God. Going on to verse 3, he says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Once again, Paul reminds that it's all God. It's the wisdom is God's, the revelation is God's. And if we look at Galatians 1, 11 through 12, we see this. For he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul knows what he knows only because of God. Now, as we mentioned again at the beginning, the word mystery, it can be kind of spooky, but it's definitely featured prominently in this passage. Paul lets them know that the mystery that he's going to summarize here, we've actually already looked at. It's what he was talking about in Ephesians 2, and it is going to be restated succinctly in Ephesians 3, 6. The grace gift that Paul gives to these people and was given for these people and for us in extension is the revelation that in Christ we have reconciliation. Only in Christ we have salvation. And that's true even for those who are utterly hopeless. Quickly through verse 4, we see that when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of God. Convinced that these are believers Paul is confident that the Holy Spirit will make them aware, will help them understand these insights that he's given them. He's sure that the prayer that he prayed in, in chapter 2 for their wisdom and knowledge would be answered and that they would have a clear picture of what he's trying to explain. Moving to verse 5, we see, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So God determines what to reveal, God determines when to reveal it, and God determines who to reveal it to. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, we see, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So these were faithful servants throughout time, and they wanted to know more about God. But God in his sovereignty determined the time, and he determined the servants to whom he would reveal the mystery of Christ. Going on to verse 6. The mystery, this mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus 
through the gospel. Again, as we touched on, this is the summary. It's the restatement of what we see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. But we see it further outlined in Romans 10, 12 through 11, which says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And also in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 3, 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Now in verse 7, we see, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. The, my the mystery of Christ, the revelation that Paul is called to be a steward of, is again the fact that we are one body, that we are united with Christ and that we are united with brothers, Jews and Gentile from around the world. The mystery is the gospel. And he reiterates that this revelation is a gift for all those who will be in Christ. And he underlines the God-centric, the God-focused view by stating that he was made a minister. One, it was someone else did this, God did this. And the other thing is that a minister is simply a servant. So Paul knows that he's been called into the service of Christ on behalf of these saints. Paul knows this because he was stopped on his murderous, God-hating Damascus trip, and he was turned to God. He was arrested. He was overpowered. He was redirected. He was given God's grace. He was given salvation. But he was also given a job to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to make disciples of all nations, including those nations that he thought initially were undeserving. Because he knows that he's one of the apostles upon whom God is going to build his church, but he also knows that he doesn't deserve that any more than any of the people he's been called to preach to. So he knows that he is nothing. He is simply God's servant. Now, brother Sean read from Jonah, and this story is an example of, of God's sovereign redirection. It's another picture of God transcending national boundaries to show his mercy and his grace. And it's a, it's a picture of using flawed men to minister and preach to others who are also flawed. And as there are many parallels, there are also some important contrasts that we might want to take note of. If we look at the first chapter of Jonah, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, like Paul, Jonah received this revelation and this responsibility. Jonah was told to go and warn the Ninevites of their impending doom, and, and this was an opportunity to repent. But Jonah thought that his service was optional. It was at his own discretion. He thought that ministry wasn't mandatory. Now, if we go back to our airplane reference, it, it, we get the sense that 
Jonah felt like he was on Southwest Airlines where he was free to move around the country and do anything that he wanted. But we know that that's not the right approach. He had to learn that by a big fish and a big storm. Now, another stark contrast we want to really look at is his attitude. So when the Ninevites were spared, Jonah was upset. So whereas Paul praised God that the Gentiles had been called into Christ, Jonah would rather die. Jonah was upset that God even allowed them to repent. And looking at Jonah 4, 1 through 3, we see what happened after the section in chapter 3 that we read earlier this morning. It said, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, before we jump back into this, how sad is it when we accuse God's righteousness of being wrong? When we tell the truth about God and somehow make that wrong. But that's what Jonah is doing here. Jonah would rather die than see God's mercy poured out on those who he didn't like. He couldn't see like Paul did that, again, we've all sinned. We're all destitute. We are all desperately in need of the miraculous work of Christ. He lost sight of the fact that he needed the mercy just as much as the Ninevites did. So from our text and by contrast, Jonah, we see that for the believer, ministry is not optional. We are to be living sacrifices. We are to use whatever God has given us for the expansion of his kingdom and to bring him glory. That, of course, includes loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it also includes using our finances, our skills, our knowledge, and our talents. So Paul starts this chapter, our text that we've been reading, by identifying himself as a prisoner. He reuses this as he starts chapter 4 as well, where again he begins to tell us what our rightful service should be in light of God's great work. In chapter 3, using the identification as a prisoner frames his assignment to the body of Christ. It gives us a sense of how he considers his service. Using it at the beginning of chapter 4 gives us wisdom into how we ought to consider our walk. It's as though he's saying, from one servant to another, do these things. Now, we are to realize that, again, anything that we receive is not for our glory. It hasn't been given us to us alone. We are stewards of God's grace gifts. And we're called to use them to build up the body of Christ. And rather than being, being merely consumers of God's benevolence, we are to be co-workers. We are to be co-servants, one with another in the body of Christ, for the purpose of making disciples of all men. Now, we know that can be hard sometimes, and there's many reasons that we can struggle with that. And we, we of course, don't have enough time to get into all of those. But Jonah does offer for us an opportunity to look at one in specific, unforgiveness. 
there's been hostility between the Ninevites and the Israelites, and it was so much so that Jonah couldn't forgive them. And rather than seeking to serve them, he would rather stand by and watch them die. He would rather die himself than see God's grace and mercy, which he desperately needed himself, being poured out on someone else simply because he didn't like them. Now, we can easily identify the failings in our leaders and in our spouses, and we can find the shortcomings in our coworkers and in our children, and we can use all of those as excuses to not seek their good and not glorify God. But may we instead rejoice to see however God might use what he has given us for his kingdom and to build his body. And let's do that before there's a big storm and a big fish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that it will not return void. Lord, may we be faithful to remember always that you and you alone will build this church, but it is your good pleasure to use us to build it up. Help us to discern your will and to be zealous for good works that you have prepared for us to do. In Jesus' name.